Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. About ready to hit the road here in a couple of days, but uh, uh, basically uh, had a chance, uh, you know, through sort of the spiritual connection to acquire a record uh, that uh, my next guest was on. And as I have often done on this journey, uh, sort of reached inside the record and pulled out um, someone who, you know, is not necessarily going to be um, grabbing like billboards on downtown Los Angeles freeways the way Stanley Clark did back in 1976 but my guest has had an accomplished really accomplished musical career continues on today playing original music really within the uh the traditions of bluegrass and folk music Ted Benicky welcome to the Jake Feinberg show hey Jake thanks for having me on the show uh, it was interesting hearing from you and look forward to talking Absolutely. I, um, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit about when you first really started to listen to um, bluegrass music, maybe in the, um, if you recognize the validity of the, of the hillbilly side of, of bluegrass music. Uh, yeah, for sure. Because that's who I was listening to, to learn from basically the, the first generation bluegrass players. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my source of inspiration for sure. Before like 65, there had just been this aesthetic that you had to follow a certain way of, in the folk tradition of playing bluegrass, but uh -huh. th then all of can you talk about some of the cats you discovered sort of, where sure. you sort, sort of ran into them on your own, like, uh, you know, just sort of happenstance, uh, because that's the way it was back then uh yeah you know we it was it wasn't so easy to even find records a friend of mine reminded me of that when we were in high school that we had to like special order them but you know we uh, uh well bill monroe is the first guy you know he's he's the the first he's the guy credited right with kind of putting bluegrass music together taking all these disparate influences um so he was the very first person i heard and then the the other band I heard was not original. They were from San Francisco, uh, a band called High Country. They put out two records on Warner Brothers, on a subsidiary of Warner Brothers called Raccoon Records that Lowell Banana from the Youngbloods uh, recorded them. And they were really the second band I heard, and they were totally kind of trying to emulate the Monroe sound. Um, and actually, that band is still around and playing, and I, and I play fiddle with them. Um, that's blowing so my mind. No, because I, I have both those records on Raccoon Records. Oh, really? That, yeah, that's dude. Vecchio Nanner, I, aka Lowell Levenger. Yeah, that's no, right. yeah. That I mean, but but I mean, you were you were seeing those cats live. Is that right? I, was. I need you I was to not. talk about because I'm not sure if the records necessarily. Maybe the Monroe thing comes across, but their live performances. I need you to talk about uh, that experience because to me. I got we got this amazing collection of bluegrass at this nonprofit that I'm at. Uh -huh. It just came the other day, and Done Gone came. Oh through. yeah, and like <laughs> it's a burning record, and I'm like, let me see if these cats are even you know because you guys are still accessible. You're not like you know to me, there are the musicians, people that play music and that are healers are some mm -hmm. of the last accessible people mm -hmm. around, and so it's uh, and you can do it through sort of this lineage, but. Um, you know, I just want you to talk about the live bluegrass experience in the late 60s in the Bay Area. 
Yeah. Well, it was it was a little bit pushed forward kind of into the yeah, I guess it was the late 60s and maybe 70. Yeah, there was a real scene uh in San Francisco. Uh and the guys in the high country were part of that scene and um a lot of it was centered around this club called Paul Saloon that closed I think in 1991. Wow. They had bluegrass there. I think about seven nights a week uh, and all the local bands played there and all the touring acts who came through, even Bill Monroe came and played there and, wow. you know, a bunch of others bands, Japanese bluegrass bands who were traveling through. That's was sick. There. That is so sick. Yeah. <laughs> it's unreal, man. Yeah. It was really, it was really an amazing, wow. an amazing thing. Uh, we were, we were lucky to have that. And so anyhow, that's, that was kind of back in that time, that was really the center of the scene. And that's where uh, we all met each other. All the, all the players that I still play with today, or at least a lot of them were people I met back in, actually for me, it was the mid seventies at, at Paul's saloon when I moved to San Francisco. So you explain where you were at before you moved to San Francisco. Sure. You- sure. I was, um, let's see what I was. Um, I, I, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, I moved to Monterey, California when I was about 10. And uh, I, you know, some of my buddies played. One one of my close friends was already a pretty decent banjo player in junior high. Another guy was a songwriter, guitarist. And, and so I met all these guys. And this was sort of like the tail end of the urban folk revival. And I was playing guitar back then. Hmm. And, you know, my friend had a mandolin. He showed it to me. And, hey, there's a band that plays up in Santa Cruz. Uh, let's go check them out. So it was sort of step by step. And uh, I, I graduated from high school, went to college for a couple of years, and then said, ah, I think I want to I, I think I want to take a break from college. My dad says, well, why don't you go to Nashville, <laughs> which was kind of stunning. And he gave me a couple hundred bucks and I, I was visiting him in Cleveland and I drove to Nashville and I had a job at the Country Music Hall of Fame within two, three days. Hmm. And I ended up living there for like a half a year, just soaking it in. I mean, it was an amazing scene for somebody who was kind of on the beginning side of playing. I came back to California, uh, played in a band, uh, and then around 1976 moved to San Francisco um and well no i want to i want to i want to get to the idea of um the idea of like how you met the band don't uh done gone like oh sure sure it's like i mean like to me like um you know there was you came a little bit after this but there was an incredible overlap especially when i listened to that record of um jazz aesthetics within the music i mean there's a lot of obviously within bluegrass there's just deep conversation anyway but sure i I tend to think that some of the cats in the band might have been jazzers before that band you know what uh none of them were what about Uh, the upright player who's the the upright player is an assassin yeah he uh, let's see uh on that album steve patier who's like an amazing uh clarence white style flat pick guitar player yeah plays mandolin no he never really delved into 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 jazz um and uh, what about the uh, the upright bass player 
No, no, uh, Steve Patier. No, he wasn't. Oh, I, he, thought that, I thought it was another. Was like, Ed, I thought it was a guy named like Ed Neal or something. Ed Ed Neff was the fiddle player. Okay, so Neff was fiddle. I thought it said you know it said bass fiddle on there. Um, oh, that's funny. I don't know why it said. Anyway, that. yeah. So 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 I'm sorry. Steve played upright. Steve played upright. Wow. And he, a Clarence White style flat picker, and we would have him go off the upright uh, for a couple of songs every set. And the 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 band leader Don Humphreys, the singer songwriter, who sadly he passed away about a year and a half ago. Um, he he was also a really good uh, lead player, and they would do things together, uh, as you you probably heard on the on the album. Um, Don was a great great songwriter. Uh, and a real character. Can you talk about a, a memorable? I mean, I feel like his spirit is one reason we've connected. And I was wondering <laughs> if you could talk about like a particular tune or how he uh, crafted, why he was a great songwriter. Well, uh, you know, he he worked at it really hard. It was almost like he couldn't help but work at it. He was always thinking about song ideas. Hmm. Uh, and he, you know, he had a real sort of sense of melody um, and just the words he put to songs. He just had a knack for it. And uh, we, yeah, a lot of those songs on that album were were Don Humphrey's originals and some bluegrass bands ended up covering uh, some, of, some of that material. Is it fair to say that, um, you know, you... At that you at the time you walked away from school, many many cats didn't finish Berkeley. There was so much work as a musician. Did sure. you want did you want to be a working musician or did you just I, I, I was sort of halfway in, halfway out. I left I left school, I started again, and then I was playing too much music and I left school again. And then I I finally went back for the last time and graduated and then went on to graduate school. Uh, in New York and and st stuck with it. So I, I, you know, I've continued on in that track while I do do music. No, I mean back in the, in the day when you yeah. when you left, um, mm -hmm. was it was it your goal to be a a, a, a musician and you would sing for yourself? Yeah, uh, you know, I think the first time I left, my goal was, hey, I'm really obsessed with this music. I want to learn more. So I didn't know where it would lead me. The second time I left, I was actually in Dungon and playing a lot. And and so I found myself playing more and more and school was re less relevant. So I, I stopped uh yeah, school for for a period. Because you it, guys were because you guys were on the road or Yeah, we were on the road a little bit, but you know, yeah, a little bit. But we I, you know, if I think back on that time, we were we were quite busy. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. We had a lot of gigs, a lot of gigs regionally. We traveled a little bit, but not much. Uh, and mostly up and down the coast. And um, they were they were they were gigs, though. I mean, you weren't getting ripped off. You were getting paid for the gig. Maybe it wasn't yeah. a lot of money. But I would say there were more gigs back then than there are now, for sure. Well, I just wanted you to talk more sort of, uh, you know, 10,000 feet macro mm -hmm. question. Just the idea of, um, how, you know. I mean, this, I was born in 78. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I mean, I, I did get a taste of that soul, but I, you know, as a journalist now, I wanted mm -hmm. you to talk about how the significance of music has changed in our culture 
from where we are today, from the time when you were actually uh, were in the hotbed of San Francisco in 76, mm-hmm. and how much music dictated our culture at that time? I, I, I think it dictated it a lot more. People would come out and hear live music a lot more. Club owners were willing to, well, we complained about what we made, but actually we're, we're probably, I'm probably making less playing clubs now uh, than we were back then. It would, I think music was more valued um, and club owners were willing to s- support musicians more than that they are now. It's, it's kind of sad. Um, and, you know, I, I really, you know, we talk about this, uh, like what happened? How did this happen? Is it, you know, some people say it was the tougher drinking laws around driving. Other people say it was the advent of all the stuff you could do at home, you know. That's right. Those are two, there's many reasons, you know, those yeah, are, exactly. those are definitely two. But, but we, we, um, yeah, we, 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 it was really, it, it, I couldn't have predicted how things would have landed here, you know, I don't know, that's a long time ago, 40, 50 years later um that that things would change so much um, right i mean i mean did you did you have a a burst of musical um uh like the like in san francisco mm-hmm. you, pl- you were playing hot and heavy but before that what was the first time that the first band you were in where you you really became consumed with the idea of the conversation on the bandstand yeah uh it that was when i came back from living in nashville and uh i met up with uh, well i had a, the guy I, uh, went to high school with and met a few other guys and we got a gig in big sur uh south carmel on the coast so classic so freaking class dude that it, was like a, it was like a farm farm town then right well it was just a you know a gas station and a, yeah. and a hotel and uh it was at the river inn and we we got this job every Friday and Saturday, and for back in 1974 or five, it was decent paying, and we'd make forty bucks each. And we that's like that's like five hundred dollars every Friday and Saturday. We we had a gig. Oh my God! Wait, what was this band? Yeah, uh, it was called. We were really bad. Coast <laughs> Ridge Boys, except for wait, what was it called? I'm sorry, Coast what? Ridge, the Coast Ridge Boys. The Coast Ridge Boys. Wow. We Mike Beck was my buddy who played in it. He's he's gone on to do his own thing. He's an amazing songwriter. He plays Telly, B Bender Telly, and acoustic guitar. And but the 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 really cool thing about the Coast Ridge Boys, when I say we were all, we all kind of sucked or were be, kind of beginning ish, we had a bass player in the band who used to play in the CBS Orchestra. He was roommates with charlie parker in kansas city he was a get jazz- out of here dude yeah and who was it his name was buddy jones buddy burger jones and he's buddy jones dude this is un. dude he was in the orchestra band he was in the cbs orchestra he knew all the all the all those guys uh he's roommates with charlie parker matter of fact he there's a, a couple of interviews with him on youtube where he tells a story of how they were roommates in Kansas and Parker stayed up all night one night and wrote a tune and he wrote Scrapple from the Apple. And he explained, <laughs> explained to Buddy, it's kind of half like Honeysuckle Rose and half uh, uh, Rhythm Changes. Right. Uh, so anyhow, Buddy really turned me on to jazz. Uh, and he said, hey, man, there's this 
great sax player playing at the Shutters, this club that Merv Griffin owned in Monterey. Uh, this guy by the name of Art Pepper. Oh my God! Yeah, baby. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, that turned my life around, really. Art explain, Pepper. explain why? Because you know what, man? Like that, dude. Art, wait, Art Pepper. Yes. Was freaking playing his ass off at the sh- at the shutters. Yeah, a little funky. Oh, you're Monterey. making my year right now. Art Pepper, Jack Sheldon, Blue Mitchell. Holy shit. One night it was Buddy on bass. The next night I can't remember the bass player, uh, and it it just turned my. It must have been smoking hot. It was smoking hot, and I I made a little cassette recording of a little some of the music. I gotta hear. Do you still have that? I gotta hear some of that. I I put it away in a shoebox, and then I converted it to a, a disc a few years ago. So I have that. It's kind of distorted, but it kind of brings back the feeling of that night. Um, and Buddy introduced me to Art, and one of the things I remember about Art Pepper, somebody wanted to hear Caravan, and he was just so loaded that he said, uh, <laughs> that's a little too difficult right now. <laughs> I'm going to play this song about this little old gal named Bobby Gentry, right? Oh. This is not far from when she had that hit, right. Old Billy Joe, and they just tore that simple tune apart oh my god and that so you're making my year right now yeah. you were with blue mitchell in what you say monterey where was monterey yeah yeah holy yeah. shit this is unbelievable. Yeah. and i remember part of the show i just remember bits of he just went down to the audience and played smoke gets in your eyes and strolled around the tables and it was beautiful dude that is so i just want to be clear can you talk about the way buddy affected your time feel as a player, like to me, like you guys, you can say you suck because you were just rookies. We did, around. yeah, that band we did. Coaster but I mean, he didn't like he wouldn't have played with you if you suck. No, I don't know why, and I still don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe he liked us. Maybe he liked having a regular gig. He's retired, raising horses in Carmel Valley. Mm-hmm. He liked us. We were friends. Well, what kind of music were you playing? It was it was straight ahead bluegrass. And he'd never played bluegrass. Dude. And he would play. Do you have tapes of that? That's what I want to hear. Uh, I want to hear tapes of that band. That dude is fucking swinging the band. Yeah. He would would take solos on on bluegrass instrumentals. and and, uh, Oh, my God. Dude, this is insane. See, I knew the spirits connected us for a reason. Buddy Jones, man. Buddy Jones. Buddy Jones, man. What a fucking icon. So he was like. Truly, he came up in the New York scene or Kansas City or in Kansas City. Well, Kansas City and then eventually uh, was part of the New York scene. And, and you know, he pl- he played with everybody. Yeah. Um, and he turned me on to jazz, which eventually ended up being one of the things I'm really like, uh, really focused on these days. Yeah, no, I saw that. And I wanted to know, you know, what does that word mean to you? Because... Me and you could walk up and down the street back mm-hmm. in Buddy Jones's day with Bird. You know, mm-hmm. bebop was a language, right? Je- je- or it was big band, right? Or it was Dixieland trad stuff, ballroom right. kind of stuff. But you knew when someone said jazz, like you knew what it meant. Now you could walk up and down the street, you get 20 different answers to what that word is. And yeah. I just wonder about what. And I'm talking more live. I'm talking in the live context. Mm-hmm. What is what does it mean to to play jazz for you? 
Um, let's see. What does it mean to play jazz? Jazz to me, it's it's like uh, immersing myself in a different language. It's swing. It's blues. A, a swing feel. A blues feel. Right. That, that's the kind of jazz I like like the best. That still retains some of that. Um, and uh, I mean, it's uh, yeah, I've been kind of obsessed with it since my early fifties. Um, and you know, tr trying to develop and learn. But I, I I love it. It's a totally different challenge than playing bluegrass. And I was in the recording studio today with Kathy Kalick band recording a new CD, and it's like a different deal. Uh, it's a lot bluegrass is a lot more physical uh, than than jazz in a way, and it's uh, just just they call on different things inside you. I think. What what instruments are you playing? Uh, I'm playing mandolin in in the Kathy Kalick band and in my jazz band, the Missing Man Quartet. I play an amplified uh, mandolin I had customized to play just straight ahead jazz. So, okay, so I mean, I have to believe that. Well, it's a, it's very humbling. I mean, dog dog Grisman is he's a he's an elder and a dear friend of mine, and mm -hmm. uh, I. Uh, you're talking about playing Beeb. I, I don't know any mandolin jazz players. There's a handful of them, for sure. But I mean, going back, uh, George Van Epps was, you know, guitar. Yeah. Uh, yeah Johnny Smith, Wes Montgomery. I mean, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. Larry yeah. Coriel, McLaughlin. Uh -huh. um, but like Jean Luc Ponty, like, you know, he played fiddle or you know whatever but you know right. you, you're you're playing mando and you're fucking playing jazz well i'm 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 trying <laughs> you're trying you're playing your jazz that's what you're doing yeah yeah i'm 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 you know it's like for me it's been i've approached it like learning another language uh it's a certain kind of idiom but everybody everybody learns a different language differently so how are you learning this uh, I, I'm learning by combination of by ear and, and learning more and more theory. And, uh, um, I'm lucky enough to be playing with a guitar player who, <clears throat> who's been, been playing since he's a teenager playing jazz. And so I'm learning a lot by playing with him. Uh, we had a bass player drummer for a while who passed away not long ago, who was a phenomenal jazz bass player. He, but he mainly played in the LA studios. He, um, Who was his cat? His name's Bill Lanfear. He he was Madonna's bass player on the Virgin tour, and he mm -hmm. he moved to the Bay Area, um, and um, I met him. He 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 really liked bluegrass music. His girlfriend brought him around to where we were playing, and eventually, yeah, he ended up playing with us. Uh, he and Sonia, he was another really experienced player. Um, so I, in a way, I feel like it's like old school where you would learn on the bandstand totally uh, before all these, you know, colleges were created, like Berkeley. Um, and no, you're, you're nailing it. Well, I mean, Berkeley, it's it, what's it used to just be North Texas and Berkeley, yes, and, and now it's everywhere, so it's it's gotten yeah. really diluted, and most cats. Well, you can't teach in the academy. You can't really, the the, you know, the last time um I remember Grisman telling me that uh 
you know, they, they did that old in the way record, and I'm sure yeah. you ha- knew oh, that yeah. record backwards and forwards, maybe even saw the group. But, um, yeah. you know, um, I remember him saying that, that for all the proceeds from that record, it was made on round records, um, all the proceeds went to making the Grateful Dead movie uh, before their hiatus. It, David didn't see much money at all, and it, and it didn't. Jerry didn't make that call, but it was like the Grateful Dead management made that call. Uh-huh. And so they didn't talk. So they didn't talk for about a fifth, 13 or 14 years uh, the, at a Pete Sears session. They re- reunited uh, in 89. But Gary last, and David? What's that? Gary and David? Garcia and, and Grisman. And yeah, the, yeah. The, the last time that they were hanging out, uh, they went to a Baskin Robbins in 75 in San Francisco mm-hmm. and uh, Jerry was there eating ice cream and David's like, Hey, Tony Rice is up in my, uh, in my loft. You should come up and jam. And so mm-hmm. they, w- they went up and jammed and, uh, and that was it. And then for 13 years, so you came into San, the San Francisco scene and in 75, 76. And um, can you talk about the kind of gigs where you were playing? Like to me, like, you know, you had uh, Vince Guaraldi playing Grace Cathedral. There were still a lot of gigs around at that time, and mm-hmm. and you and so how did that band, Don Gone, come together? Um, yeah, we met Don. He was living in, a, you know, he was living with a bunch of guys in a kind of very commune kind of thing up in Sonoma County. Right, and uh, uh, the banjo player in Don Gone somehow came to know him and say, hey, come on. So we went over and jammed with Don and his buddies. Uh, the band was called uh, Daydreamers Ball. And, and I said, man, this guy, he can really play great rhythm guitar, great lead, and he sings well. It was so much fun. And so that's how we met Don um, and the rest. And the banjo player uh, I met living in the dorms when I was in college at Sonoma for a couple of years. He turned me on to all these. He had all these bootleg tapes of live shows, Flat Scruggs, Stanley Brothers, Bill Monroe, all that. Um, and then Steve Patier, the bass player, guitar player, met at Paul Saloon. Uh, Ed and uh, Ed Neff. Um, yeah, where's what's dude? Ed Neff. That Ed dude, Neff. Yeah, that dude is uh, unbelievable. I mean, those guys. Were you guys like the Bay Area? I mean, Paul's Saloon was still. Closed in 91, but were you maybe at one time the hottest bluegrass band to come? I mean, I, this this album I got, Private Press, that was my question. When did you first, how did you wind up playing with Garcia? Uh, well, I, I I never played with Garcia in a band, although I, I've been on stage with him playing once. That's what I, well, that's what I, was, I, was, I wanted you to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to graduate school in New York City, uh, a a friend of mine from the Bay Area, Sandy Rothman, who's this amazing bluegrass player. Banjo. Oh my God, dude! Holy shit! I, yeah. he's, I've been looking for to interview Sandy for so long. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he said, "Hey, I'm playing with David Nelson at the Lone Star on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. It was the Summer of Love reunion by Relics Records. So you want to come sit in on fiddle? And oh, by the way." Uh, Garcia, the dad, are playing at Meadowlands, and Garcia said he might stop by, and and he did stop by, and uh, he got up and played with us. 
maybe three, four songs. That is so awesome. Yeah, it was really awesome. And, and I, I sat and talked with him, you know, a, after, and he was just like a regular guy, you know, real smart, um, yeah, very accessible. He, he seemed like such a nice, nice person. That's so. When did you first cross? Well, Sandy goes back with with Jerry to the beginning. I mean, when, yes. Like, how did you? When did you meet Sandy? I met Sandy uh, when I first moved to the Bay Area, and I'd only been playing mandolin a, a few years, and he hired me to play uh, various throw together bands, uh, and that's 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 how I met him. What what I mean like like what what were the various throw together bands? I mean, um, there was a guy by the name of John Murphy, a guy from the South who lived lived sort of not far from the Bay Area, uh, good singer, played real kind of trad bluegrass, right. sang, playing with him, and he asked me to play, and so I played maybe a couple of gigs, uh, and then I remember playing you know other gigs that people would throw to bands together and uh, you know. We we played at Paul's uh, with with Sandy. You know, it, was, it it had it's not been that many gigs with Sandy over the years, but we had a handful of times we were found ourselves on stage together. What is your um? I, I kind of wanted you to talk about this in as mm -hmm. a musician or in any sure you know way. Uh, you know your concept of leadership and uh, what do you think the most effective qualities of leadership are, especially on the bandstand. Uh-huh. That's an interesting question. Um, well, I, I have in, in some ways I have to use Kathy Kallick as a model, you know. Uh she's you know the, the head of head of that band. And um she, you know, really tries to make sure that everybody is getting a piece of everything we're doing, right? Uh singing, playing. Um, you know, she, 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 you get, you get the feeling from her that it's important to her that we all are happy and feel like we're, we have a stake in the band. So I think that's a really nice quality, um, that she has. And plus she's a, a really good front person. Don Humphreys was a good front person, uh, with Dun Gone. He, he'd get kind of off the wall, but he was very funny. What do you so, mean? Can you give an example of going off the wall? Oh God, I... You know, he would he would just kind of kind of uh, all of a sudden launch into uh, uh, what's that song? Rolling Stone song, uh, Devil. I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, no, I'm not a Stones cat, but yeah, I'm sure. Go ahead. Yeah, he just would launch into stuff spontaneously like that, <laughs> you know, and we we try to follow him. Right. Uh, in, so in, he, you mean in a bluegrass setting, he just rocked. Yeah, right. Oh right. my God, that is exactly. sick. Well, well, I remember he, he liked doing this one Jethro Tull song. Uh, oh my God. And then, then he had a couple, three Dylan songs that, so he was really kind of omnivorous musically, really, even though he was really rooted in bluegrass. So he that, was on, but he was authentically omnivorous. Like he, he didn't do it just to fuck around. Like these, no, he, he no. listened to the stuff. He yes. listened to the stuff. Exactly. He listened to the stuff, uh, and he and he was really, really into it. Um, so that was that was fun, and he was just kind of a comedian, right? He, 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 you know, the the most important thing about Don for for us 
he was about 10 years older than me was he was we were sort of getting our heads were on our instruments right sure he tried to convince us that we're entertainers <laughs> and we were we weren't gone with him we were we were fighting him tooth and nail and <laughs> and, the, and the audience would request one of the three or four songs that maybe an average audience person might have ever heard of in bluegrass and you know we were all sort of a little snobby what that song oh not that song you know wow 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 and, and, and don don would say so somebody requests one of the few songs they can ever relate to and you're going to tell them no <laughs> so, <laughs> so i told don before he died he said don you you were right about all that <laughs> i love that you told him that yeah that's yeah. good man a lot of people go to their grave never knowing how people really feel or what the truth is it's really yeah. important to do that. No, I was going to say that. Um, wow, that is a so you was it was it a, a humbling experience, sort of <clears throat> uh, losing the snobbery of bluegrass for you, or did was it just sort of a flow thing where all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm more tolerant? I think it was a it was more of a of a flow thing, and right. and it's kind of maybe maturing more. And what, well, what was the first? Yeah. What was the first like greasy? weird was it punk music like what got you off outside of the what you would consider to be you know the, the higher end of of uh the high lonesome bluegrass music you mean what what got me interested in other kinds of music yeah exactly well i was interested in all kinds of stuff before bluegrass i mean you were freaking seeing art pepper dude are you fucking kidding yeah me? well and 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 even before that you know i I like all the stuff all my friends like Crosby, mm -hmm. Stills, and Nash, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and then some of the folk music, and then you know Cream, and you know all that, all that. I I loved all that stuff, and I played some of it on guitar before I switched over to mandolin. You you have you? I was going to say, have you actually been a leader of a band? I know you you gave props to Kathy. I, yeah, I. Uh, occasionally, this last couple of years, I've been like throwing bands together and 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 calling it Tom Beckett and friends, and and I would I would like to do more of that because I'm I'm uh, I want to do more singing, um, and so really, I'm really in a setting where I'm 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 doing more singing. That's absolutely beautiful, man. You you're telling me that in the in the band like bands like Done Gone, like you you would sing harmonies, but wouldn't necessarily sing lead. I would sing a little bit of lead, and that's that's kind of always been my role, you know. Sing one a set, maybe two, but I've really gotten more interested in singing in recent years and worked on it and get more pleasure out of singing than I ever have. And I wanna, I wanna be able to do that more, and if I ever pull together my own thing. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you if you could talk to the audience about. Um a time in your life when you faced adversity, how you overcame it and how it made you a stronger person. Hmm. Some would say music is being a road dog. You didn't necessarily go this far, but no. the, the life of a musician uh, in itself can be an adverse thing. But, you know, I've also talked to guys like Steve Gadd who hmm. basically lost everything because of addiction, you know, he was the top studio drummer, but then he couldn't see his kids and 
Mm-hmm. But then he, he he got sober, he cleaned himself up, he came back, and he had friends and reconnected. And that's mm-hmm. just one example. So I'm just in your whole scope of life. Mm-hmm. What is what well, what is something that you've been resilient from, and and it's made you who you are today? Well, you know, I I, I guess I've been pretty lucky. That's beautiful. Uh, that's great too. Yeah, I I I remember uh, I was going through some relationships stuff. Uh, and I was touring in Europe with uh, Lori Lewis in 1985. Wow. And, th- and we were there wow. for a few weeks, I think. And I, I was going through a-, a breakup and it was really, I mean, I was like falling apart. Yeah. And the music in a way helped me get through that because it got me out of my head, got me focused back on what we were doing, traveling and playing. And, and it and it really helped uh, help me get through that period. It was a rough period. Where do you need to grow the most today outside of singing? Um, is it taking the next step of being a band leader? Where do you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to grow? You know, uh, I, I think being uh, more comfortable and willing to take the lead, right, in a band, which I've, I've always been a side band, really. Uh, and sure. Nothing wrong of, with that either. Kind of owning that. Yep. Um, and also, kind of on the business end, you know, I'm not, I'm not a really good promoter of myself. So, um, and my my wife comments on this. Boy, you, you, you seem to be more willing to try to hustle gigs than uh, I'm a psychologist. You know, I have a private practice. Than you are kind of trying to hustle your. <laughs> And it's probably probably true. Uh, and wow. so I, I want I want to be better at that, um, more comfortable with it, and better at it. So that's another. Area. Uh, but I mean, also like you've you've been through it for so long. I mean, that's the other travesty about you know you talk about in house studios and mothers against drunk driving and uh-huh. you know uh, things that have taken away from the live music experience in the context of its significance to our culture and. Uh, yeah. You know, the other thing is just that um, musicians have to wear eight hats now. Uh, not, you know, if you were part of, you know, Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, they didn't have a radio friendly tune for two or three years, but the record company stuck with them. Mm-hmm. The musicians could focus on the art itself as opposed to having to wear eight hats mm-hmm. and being your own promoter. Who the hell? Right wants to promote their own shit, you know? Right. And back right. then, those cats could go on tour. You know, you might have even gone on tours that lost money, but the record made so much, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that's another huge part of it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, man, I mean, I- I'm so honored to have connected with you, man. And I uh, I look forward to tapping into uh, to this community that, you know, musicians that you know, man. I've just, I've been, I've been doing this 12 years, just mm-hmm. public just published my fifth book and uh you know a lot of people oh, consider cool. a lot of people consider me a shrink on the radio so all right well uh yeah uh, thanks for sending the link to your book i'm, I'm interested in uh i well, will send you all the I, I wrote a book on uh that was the other thing did you ever uh cross paths with uh i wrote a book on uh the merry pranksters and i wasn't sure if you ever crossed paths with ken kesey and those cats i did i did not no. <laughs> uh, yeah no but I, from the musician side Mm-hmm. You're going to love to hear and read some of this humanistic stuff uh, that I've been able to pull out of the cats. And 
you're one of the cats, man, and obviously doing some some unique stuff. Um, so I'm glad that you've been lucky, and uh, it was so great to hang, man. Thanks a lot, Jake. This was fun, and hope hope to meet up with you at some point. Absolutely, my man. All right. All right. Be cool. Take care. Bye.